it's really hard to give a gift to a history teacher. They never enjoy the present. Hi, everyone. Hey, y'all. It's me, Wesley, back for another episode of Teach This Teacher podcast. And I am very excited because our last podcast was such a success. And if you have not checked that out, please go back and listen to it. It's all about how special education teachers dealt with digital learning and how they were able to serve the students with disabilities during the pandemic. We're going to kind of continue that theme this week because our subject this week is a look at what all of our students are missing with a year and a half out of the classrooms. It is not just back to normal, pick up where you left off, as we all know. So later on in the show, we're going to have a superintendent out of Michigan, a superintendent of schools coming and talking about what his district has found that students are missing when it comes to this post-COVID lockdown setting. We're not post-COVID, but hopefully we are post-lockdowns. So the article that I have for you all this week that I looked at is from The Atlantic. I love The Atlantic. They have some great reporters with great articles, and they report on things that you can't find on the major news networks. I love The Atlantic. And this article is called The Pandemic Broke a Fundamental Principle of Teaching. And I've gone through it and marked it up and put my comments on the side. So let's talk about it. So I thought that they started off with a really great point. And they started off by saying that everyone was rushing to get students back into the classroom, and rightfully so. But then they said, what happens once they get there? What a excellent question to ask, because it's more important to understand what's going to happen once they get there than how soon are we going to get them back in the class. And pretty much all of our schools all over the nation are back in session in-person learning. So one thing that this article pointed out was students that were disadvantaged got further behind. It had a number of 340,000 kindergartners never logged on to an online session, which is serious when that's all that they were being offered. So they weren't getting a formal education, as far as we know, at all for a whole year or more. and. What the data showed was this was more prevalent in low-income communities where students were already likely to be behind their classmates. I thought another very interesting point, and it said that this was from a McKinsey report, and it said that studies show that they believe that students will make 49000 to 61000 less dollars less dollars over their lifetime, not per year, but up to $61,000 less over their lifetime because of the learning that was lost during the pandemic. So a lot has been lost. But to put these numbers on it, 340,000 kindergartners, $61,000 of lost income, it really helps us digest the depth of this problem. What do we do about this? And this episode is perhaps a few months later 
than I would have liked it to have been, because what we're going to talk about is things that you probably have already figured out, but that's okay. Um, Maybe it just confirms what you figured out or adds a little bit more to it. But what we're seeing is that we need test, test, test. And I know that's a dirty word in education, but testing should not be a dirty word. What you do with testing might be a problem. If you are grading your teachers based on their test scores, that's where we get into problems. If you're trying to figure out school funding and you're allocating funding based on who has good test scores and who have bad test scores. And so those things are problems. If you're allocating funding based on that, those things are problems. But testing is good trying to figure out where are our students. So if I'm all ready to teach the third grade lesson that I've taught for five years, it's very likely that I won't be able to do that like I have been because the third graders that I'm now going to be getting in my classroom are not where my third graders were when I got them pre-pandemic. So when we give them those standardized tests that we give them, we learn to teach them where they are. Maybe I need to go back to middle of second grade. Uh, Maybe I need to go back even further or not as far. So I thought that these were really great points. And I'm just going to throw in a random thought here, going back to those 340,000 kindergartners that never showed up for one day of class. By the way, it wasn't just kindergartners. It also said that millions more lost days, weeks, or months because of the pandemic. But I want to go back and say this. Hopefully, this won't be a problem if we ever have to do something like this in the future, because hopefully we will have broadband within a few years. I really do hope that we invest in our country to bring broadband to every corner of this country, because it really is going to lift up, that rising tide is going to lift up all of our children's boats, period, full stop. Internet is the way of the future. It's just like how we got the electricity grid over the entire country, the interstate system, we need broadband. And and kudos to school districts that thought of innovative ways to get around that. The district that I last taught in had hotspot buses and a bus driver would drive to each neighborhood with Chromebooks and a hotspot and students could come on and do hours worth of work and then they would move on to the next community. So kudos to all those innovators out there. We'll ask our guest if they did anything similar. So speaking of assessments, I said that we need to assess and use that data to meet our students where they are. We have on our blog, teachthisteacher.com, and then you go to our blog, we have ways to assess students without giving them, quote unquote, test. Instead of giving them 30 multiple choice or 200 multiple choice, we have a great blog about how to give them assessment to where they're also learning while they're being assessed. It's a great blog. You should take a read. So I also thought it was really important to know, and we already know this because we've already been doing this, but perhaps not to the degree that we're going to have to do it post-COVID. And that is our twofold task of catching up students that need to be caught up. And we all know the difficulty in that, but at the same time, teaching and motivating those students that are on level. I don't know more to say about that except to remind us all that always has to be done, but to a greater degree post-COVID lockdowns. 
Also, last tip that I gained from this article on The Atlantic, and the article will be in the show notes, is that we need greater cross-grade collaboration. I'm going to call it cross-grade. So the fourth grade teachers are going to have to work with the third grade teachers. The sixth grade teachers are going to have to work with the fourth grade teachers. Might have to go down two grades to understand the standards of those grades that are lower than you, whether it's a fifth grade teacher talking to a fourth grade teacher. And I thought that was an excellent point. And some of us were never very good at group work in school. And so we might not be very great at collaboration, but we've got to get better so that we can make up this learning gap that we see post-COVID. So thank y'all. And up next is our very exciting guest, a superintendent from the state of Michigan. Guys, it would be a total shame if I forgot to put in a quick plug for my website, teachthisteacher.com. Look, it's really our website. It's a website for teachers. If you want to make some passive income at the end of this year or the new year, check out teachthisteacher.com. There's something that you can teach other teachers and have live classes on my website and make a great passive income on the weekends and after school during the week. You set your own schedule and you've got to do it today or you'll never get to it. Let me see you on teachthisteacher.com. So now we have Dr. Pat Watson with us. He's a superintendent of schools, actually. And so I'm really, really excited about this interview. And as I said before, what we're going to go over with Dr. Watson is the long-term effects of COVID. And also we're going to, at the end, ask him about what schools in his state and maybe even nationally in his own district is doing about the school violence that we're seeing, the epidemic, really. So Dr. Watson, let me start with the long-term effects of COVID that you're seeing. Can you tell us when COVID hit us all in early 2020 and totally, for most of us, out of the blue, what happened in your school district and how did you all respond? So at that point, I I was new to Bloomfield Hills. I had been on the job counting weekends, 59 days. You know, started my first ever superintendency. And so when we closed, you know, we listened to our governor and the idea was we're going to close for a period of time to allow the hospitals to catch up and not be overrun. And it was the best thing to do. We didn't realize at that point in March of 2020 that we were going to be closing for the remainder of the school year. And so we kind of scrambled to pivot to make sure everyone had a device at home, that people had internet access or we got them a hotspot or got them signed up for cable. And then just asking our teachers to really shift their instruction and do something that's never been done, right? So you you spend all this time learning how to become a teacher and then teaching. And there really wasn't a lot of, this is what it's like to teach full-time online. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of unknowns. The message we really tried to get together or get across to our teaching staff was, it's okay to fail, right? There's nobody that really is the expert on how to move a whole district from predominantly in-person to predominantly virtual. Right. So try different things. So that was kind of the mindset we have when we made that shift in March of 2020. 
Yeah, that's so interesting. I know, I don't know the demographics where you are. I taught in a very rural school and I don't know the percentage, but there's a good number of students that did not have internet access. But they thought of an innovative solution. They sent around school buses with hotspots to the various neighborhoods. So they would say, you know, students over here, the bus will be there from 11 to 1 because we were one-to-one device. Everybody did have their own device, but what good is that if you don't have internet? And that's what teaching is all about. We're always having to be very flexible. But I didn't know that you were brand new to being a superintendent. So who did you lean on? I heard you mention the governor who, in my opinion, tried to do his best job as she could up there. But besides the state government, how else did you make your decisions? What advice were you getting? So I had a, I have a nice group of mentors, right? So I reached out to them. Some are current, some are retired superintendents. And they were kind of in the same spot I was. They've never experienced this. There's no preparation. There's no advice that they really could give. And they did the best they could to be supportive. And I was a longtime history teacher. And so I loved the research. And so I started looking at some of the research and what was going on. And I found out there were countries that were ahead of us. So as a district, we built our own consortium of schools for best practices. It included schools from Denmark, Japan, South Korea, Canada, and Israel, and then with 20 different states in the United States. Okay. And so it was May and June of 2020 that we're meeting with a school in Denmark that's gone back, a school in Japan that's gone back in preparation for going back in person in the fall of 2020. Mm-hmm. And we did start virtual in the fall of 2020, but based on the work with the consortium, we had three different models we ran at the same time when we came back in person. Yeah, One was at the high school level, one was K-8, through and then one was K-12 through for special education yeah. students. So I found it really beneficial working with the other districts, in particular in another country, that were already going through what we were about to go through. Yeah, I don't know if a lot of people know, but at your level in education, you guys don't get the summer off. And I'm sure that that summer was one where you really did. You probably, (laughs) you definitely didn't have a summer vacation preparing for that. Yeah, I'm positive of that for sure. So let's go from talking about how you dealt with the lockdowns, which were, like you said, important to stop the spread. Those terms have kind of gotten lost. We were taught stop the spread, flatten the curve, but we really do forget how important that was. But let's talk about this school year that we're almost at the halfway point. What have you all, you, your staff, whether it's other folks in the board office or in the classrooms, on the administrators in the schools, what have you all noticed students are missing from that year, a year and a half maybe of online learning? For some, it's the academic piece, right? Yeah. So we've, we've looked at that. We've been very fortunate that a lot of our students have been able to maintain their academic standards. A huge piece is the mental health piece Yeah. in socialization. So if yeah. you read the CDC reports regarding the number of students that have been admitted to ER or urgent care with anxiety, depression, suicidal ideations, that's extremely high. The Surgeon General came out with a report last week, same type of mental health concerns for adolescents. So that's something that we're trying to work our way through. Yeah. And, you know, you kind of think of it as like your freshman in high school. Their last, quote unquote, normal year of school was sixth grade. Wow. Wow. Kind of behaving like a sixth grader, right? That third grader, their last year of normal school, whatever that means nowadays, was kindergarten. Right. First grade, they got sent home early. Second grade was hybrid, fully in person, 
virtual for two months, and now they're in third grade. Yeah. So those things and those socialization and those people contacts, they really haven't made those. So mental health is a huge concern. And we see a lot of students struggling for what it means to be back in school full day, every day, yeah. you know, with still a lot of work and things like that. Yeah. Not to mention our staff. Yeah. You know, I was kind of naive thinking this year might be a little bit easier. Maybe we won't be a mask. Maybe COVID will be a thing in the past. Naive yet again. You know, our COVID numbers in Michigan are the highest in the country. Yep. The staff is just, they're exhausted. Yep. They're just exhausted with everything right now. Yeah. And I, I was reading some articles. It's hard to get everything in one episode, but I was reading some articles just about how many staff are planning on resigning because it's just too much. And so that's a really good point. Uh, you talked about the ninth graders being back in sixth grade. And then what about the children that were in kindergarten? I don't even want to go there. I don't even want to think about that. And so our listeners, you probably all are familiar with the term, the summer slump. Kids lose things in the summer anyways. If they you know, leave on a Lexile score of 900, when they start back school, they might have slid back to a 800 or so. So we, we always do it that summer slump when we're coming back and that learning, I don't know if you call it a gap, but they lost. So let me ask you, how are you and your schools trying to play catch up? What are your catch up plans? So two summers ago, summer of 2020, we offered virtual instruction. We gave out workbooks for students to do during the summer. This past summer, we had virtual options and in-person options as far as a summer academy. We also hired additional teachers K-12 through to lower the class sizes. We've looked really closely at our multi-tier systems of support to make sure we're providing the tier one and tier two interventions that are really, really needed. I think those are key things that we've looked at. We've added additional social work support in all of our buildings so more students have access to a social worker. Okay. And so we'll continue to evaluate those things now at the halfway mark coming up in January yeah. to see if we're kind of doing what we need or if there are more needs that our students have. I think it's important for everyone to understand that this is going to be a whole generation of students that need additional support. Right. It's not going to be, well, one year we did this for mental health and we had an assembly and we brought in therapy dogs. And now in fourth grade, they're great, right? So Right. Another example is we've added therapy dogs to two of our buildings. And by February, all of our elementary and middle schools will have a therapy dog in the building working with the students that is dedicated for the students. So we're looking at those long-term supports, knowing that it's a lot for this generation, what they're dealing with, the amount of data that they have to process daily compared to what people did in the 70s and 80s. Right. And just also the impact social media is having yeah. on their mental health. So what I'm hearing too from you is whether you're a parent or an educator, pack your patience. Like you said, we cannot think tomorrow or once we've hopefully gotten this pandemic down to levels that we're accustomed to with the seasonal flu, we're still going to have to play catch up and there's always going to be that gap. I, I don't know if this is good to say, but I think fortunately, at least it's not just American students that are going to be this year and a half behind. It's the whole world. So at least we have that and we'll be learning together. And I like the point you made earlier about learning from those different countries. That's really awesome to hear. So everybody knows as they listen to this podcast that this is one school district. Hopefully, I'm sure all school districts or at least the vast, vast majority of them are taking steps too. So I'm really glad to hear this. I kind of cheated and got out of the field um, right when it was getting even more difficult. That's not something I'm happy about, <laughs> but it, I was called to go a different way. 
So my hat's off to y'all. Thank you very much. So I'm going to do a, a really bad turn here to a different topic, but it, I guess the segue can be the difficulties that this generation of students are facing. And I'm in the middle between this technology ingrained generation and not like, for example, I remember when I was in elementary school, I think we still had dial up internet and the most advanced game we played was the Oregon Trail. So I'm not totally in either generation, <laughs> um, but they are faced with a lot of things that we weren't faced with because we definitely didn't have social media when I was in middle school. It was starting to creep up when I was in high school. So this generation, one of the things that they're facing, we know that we're facing is this school violence, as I call it, an epidemic. I think you guys are, what, an hour away from the Oxford High School tragedy? We're probably about 30, 35 minutes, maybe oh, wow. 40. We're, we're extremely close. They're, they're also in our league for athletics and activities. Wow. We're in the same league. Wow. We have staff members that had children in the building when things occurred. My word, my word. Were you surprised at the national reaction? I was floored that, you know, I kind of watched the trending topics on Twitter and I'll have my news sites. I didn't see it for more than a day or two. I mean, you go back to a couple of tragedies ago, sad to say, by the way, everyone, as we record this, this is the ninth anniversary of Sandy Hook. Do you feel like that the national media paid the attention that this tragedy was due? I'm not sure I could even answer that. I'm not sure how much time is the right amount or the wrong amount. What I can say is that we continue to see gun violence throughout the country. It's not just schools. We're less than a week out from a shooting that happened down in Texas that occurred at a vigil where 13 people were injured, and I believe one person was killed Yeah, at a candlelight vigil, right? right? I have friends that live in Chicago, and they live on the south side, and they're concerned about their safety and the amount of gun violence. So we have a country that's inundated with gun violence. Sure. What the answer is, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe somebody has that answer. As schools, we're cognizant of safety. But just not safety around active shooting, but safety at the bus stop, safety yeah. going out at recess and making sure the playground. There's a lot more concerns as we send our children to school now than we did 20, 30, 40 years ago when we sent our children off to school. And I know for us, we're in the process of hiring someone that's going to be in charge of safety and security protocols in our district all the way from the bus stop up to active shooter training. Excellent. Just so it's top of mind. Yeah. Because so often, been in education almost 30 years now, it seems like a tragedy happens, everyone reacts, everyone updates their procedures. A couple of years go by, and maybe you're not staying on top, maybe you are, but we definitely want it to be top of mind so that regardless of a tornado like we just saw that hit in Kentucky, yeah, and you hear about people in a candle factory that died, people in Illinois in an Amazon warehouse that died, you know, it makes sense. What was the training? Right. Did they know where the shelter was? Policies and procedures and protocols and who's making sure those are known and updated and trained? Again, that's why we're going to be hiring someone in this next year early on that can fulfill that from a school perspective where every day they wake up thinking about how can I make the school safer for everyone that enters them? That is really comforting to hear. It reminds me of the superintendent in this district that I was in. He actually, don't ask me how you make this jump from being a sheriff to a school superintendent, but that's what he did. So he was very cognitive of safety. And so it was after, I forget which tragedy, there's been so many, as you already stated, but after we were reviewing our procedures and 
the whole school district was ready to use the fire alarm as our active shooter alarm because they were like, well, the shooter won't know that we're on to him. And he was like, no, that doesn't work because X number of the last shootings, the shooter actually pulled the alarm to get people to run out into the hall. And I don't want to get too dark here, but I'm glad that you guys are putting someone in place that are looking at that because you just mentioned something I didn't even think about safety at the bus stop. And so it's sad that we have to evolve like we do, but we're doing what we have to do. And I'll say it again, not enough attention was put on Oxford. I just, I can't believe how desensitized that we've gotten, but I'm not going to keep you too long. Thank you for that very, very much. And everybody, all the teachers listening, let's just remember that we're under a lot of pressure, but our students are too with the things that Dr. Watson and I already talked about and even more the shootings and the violence. So I want to throw a curveball at you. I did my research and read your profile on your website. So you have a couple kids in college. Here's my curveball. The winter breaks are coming up. What is the tradition that you're looking forward to doing? Are your kids coming back home? What's winter break going to look like at the Watson house? Wow. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> we're breaking some of the traditions. Traditionally, we always chop down a Christmas tree together every year. But, you know, I've become an empty nester this year. So it's a little bit different. My youngest is back home. She's a freshman at Ohio State University. So she's home for the holidays. Awesome. My middle child, she now lives in Wisconsin-Madison where she went to school. Okay. She forgot to put in to get time off of work. So she won't be coming home until after the New Year's because as a first time <laughs> person in the job market, she didn't realize people request those days off or the holidays <laughs> right away. Pretty early. You're not guaranteed yeah, yeah. Off. absolutely. And then my youngest son, he'll be traveling to Africa. He'll be going to uh, Senegal. Oh, and wow. Spending two weeks there. His girlfriend is from Senegal. So he's going to meet her family. And uh, he's a now high school history teacher in my former district where I previously worked. And so it's going to be a little different for us. Um, so, yeah. you know, some new traditions will look to start now that we're empty nesters. But good question. You did catch me a little off guard. <laughs> Appreciate that. <laughs> well, that one in Wisconsin, if she hadn't gone into education, she wouldn't have had that problem. You don't have to put in any time off if you're an educator. So let her know that. One last thing before we go, because we're still under the 20 minute mark. So one of the things that we tweeted about last week was how has being a educator affected your parenting style? So I'll give you an example. My sixth grader can't get away with anything. I literally have his password to his Google Classroom so I can see when all his assignments are due. And I know that I only do that because I was an educator. And so I know all the tricks of the trade. Can you tell us real quick how you being an educator, how did it affect your parenting? That's my last curveball and I won't do another one. <laughs> so I, I would say just formative assessments of my kids. You know, you have that conversation. <laughs> where are you at? Are we here? Are we here? Right. Do you understand? Like here's the five. Right. Five means I completely understand. I got you, dad. Here means you need <laughs> me to let you know a couple. So just some of those things. Right. And then I would say the other part is education. In that, you yeah. know, we expressed early on to our children that, you know, it is basically your job. Mm -hmm. School, there's a task at hand. And, mm -hmm. you know, our kids grew up in a household where reading was valued, where we celebrated education. Yeah. And, you know, their goal as they became older was to earn scholarships for academics. Wow. So they could go to the school they wanted. That's right. And, and graduate debt-free. So a little brag, I'm, I'm really proud of all three of my kids 
they all earn academic scholarships. Awesome. You know, my youngest, like I said, is a freshman, but when she's done, I'll have three that are able to go through college and not have any debt when they graduate, which is something my wife and I are very proud of them for the work they put in academically to that point. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you shared that. And I'll be sharing that with my sixth grader because, you know, I'm not all about all A's if you don't have that capability, but he is capable. And so we do the same thing in my household. I wholeheartedly agree. Dr. Watson, I'm going to cut it off right here. You've been more than generous with your time and I appreciate this so very much. Thank you for coming on and continuing this conversation because really education is continual. And so we're always learning and we appreciate your leadership up there in Michigan. And again, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Take care. So now let's look at our Twitter teacher world, teacher, Twitter, Twitter teacher, however you want to say it. The tweet of the week is from Shanae, a teacher out of Texas. Her handle is at Hey Miss Bond. I love this tweet and I'll tell you why. So the tweet says, I'm all about not celebrating Christmas in schools. I've had students personally tell me that it's triggering. I'm wrestling with how to create seasonal magic throughout the year and specifically in autumn, winter, when things are darker and colder and school feels like prison. So I, I really like this tweet for a couple of reasons. First of all, I agree. I don't care if it's just one or two kids in your class that feels left out because they don't celebrate Christmas. One or two matters. And the second reason I like this tweet is because Shanae is right. We can bring cheer and joy to all of our students without ostracizing just a couple or a few. So for them to try to get through this season without being made fun of or standing out or they just participate, even though it bothers them, they don't want to, is not okay if we can avoid it. And we can avoid it. So Shanae did not go on to tell us some of those great ideas that she had to do that, but check it out on Twitter because there's 123 comments. And so I'm sure that people put their ideas on how to do that. And I totally agree. I always called it an end of the year party. And there are many, many, many more creative ways to do that than I just said. But thank you, Shanae, for putting that out into the Twitterverse in our teacher Twitter. The tweet that I would like to highlight from Teach This Teacher, this is the tweet. It says, today, parents are burying their 17-year-old that was killed while he was studying in a Michigan high school. The news has moved on. I have not. Shame. And um, that tweet really encapsulated my emotions. More infuriating than the tragedy that happened in Michigan at Oxford High School is the response from the media. Really the response from America. I expected for this, and it's sad to use trending Twitter topics for this barometer, but I didn't see this trending on Twitter for more than a day. And it went away so fast and it shows the numbness that we have all come to to expect violence in our schools. As I've already said before, I can't believe the attitude of the students in that famous TikTok video of them going out the window and talking, what do we do? They were so calm. It was almost as if they knew this day would come. And they do know that this day would come and it's good that they were calm 
because cooler heads prevail and they were able to keep themselves safe. However, why do we have the situation in America where it's just commonplace? I will never, I will never forget the feeling I had. It was my first year teaching third grade, the younger students, and I had to explain to them what happens when we have an active shooter drill. And it was a catch-22 because on one hand, I didn't want to scare them to death. On the other hand, I needed them to know the seriousness of getting into a corner and being really, really quiet. And I hope I threaded that needle just right. But I never, ever will forget that feeling of watching these little babies crawl into the corner and be quiet because some bad guy was outside, possibly with a semi-automatic rifle. We've got to do something about this. And it's not okay that we swept under the rug and it's not a big deal in society anymore. It matters to me. I'm still angry and shame on everybody that says there's nothing we can do about it. Thanks, everybody. I hope that you stay passionate. I hope that you stay energetic as we finish out these last few days before our winter break. Because as I always say, in January, we have to do it all over again. See you next time. And one more thing before we go, you should tweet at us. Our handle is at Teach This Teach. We can also be found on Facebook, Teach This Teacher. And I want to know what you thought about the episode, any questions that we can answer next episode. And you can also tell us what you would like to hear us do a show on. We'd love to hear you. I keep saying us. That's because this is not a one-man project. I also like to give a shout out to Janelle Wold. Her website is jwoldvirtual.com, where she offers virtual solutions for any project that you might be working on. Thanks, Janelle. Thanks, all my listeners. I hope to podcast with you again in a couple of weeks. Bye, everyone. Thanks.